0: Um. Okay, welcome to Fabanga bunga bunga And this week, <laughs> as usual, we're going to be talking about politics!
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm only laughing because Jordan started laughing.
0: Alex? George. Huh? Um, yeah, I be- mean, I've I, I not don't, I don't,
2: I don't, I don't really been thinking about uh, anything, think, other than... <laughs> <laughs> You've just been a bit of tough weight, I mean, yeah. left and right. Yeah, I mean, I I, I just... Coming up on your radar: politics, defence. Uh, I'm not, well, I'm, I can confidently predict. I'm really looking
0: forward to the next fucking funeral. We're back to our uh, usual three presenters. So uh, let's everyone say hi. Uh, I'm hi. Philip Cunliffe. I'm hi, everyone. I'll wait my turn. Are you interrupting me again, Alex? Okay, now you can say hi. Say hi. Hi. Say hi, George, and welcome back to our third present regular presenter, George
2: hi I was I was away I was, I've been on holiday I don't know if listeners have noticed or
0: missed me yeah. or listeners listeners didn't notice they didn't care and um, it might be devastating nobody, back, but we're not literally. talking about your personal life nobody's interested in it we're here to talk about politics so what we are going to talk about this week is um, what's been happening in the u.s in Charlottesville and um, the riots and death and mayhem over there. Uh, There's lots of stories, obviously, that we could have talked about. Originally, we had an entirely different topic in mind. Um, But on top of that, you also have what's happened, the terror attack that just happened um, the other night in Barcelona. And then just recently, just today, in fact, in the last 24 hours, you've had the resignation of um, Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon. And maybe some of those things will all come up in the course of the discussion about what happened in Charlottesville as well. But before we do that... um, let's hear what people have been thinking about. Uh, So uh, because you've been away, George, how about you tell us, what have you been thinking about while you've been away?
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about how nice it is not to have to be concerned with politics, actually being on holiday, not reading the news. You know, you can actually live life. You don't have to be continually depressed and saddened by, you know, going on Twitter obsessively and hearing all these terrible things that have happened. And in fact, actually, when I came back from holiday, I don't, I don't know if this, is, I don't know if this just makes me a, a weird, a pessimistic person, but actually checking the news, the first thing that I thought was, okay, will I see a story here about um, about nuclear war with North Korea? Oh no, it's just um, a horrible gathering of fascists in America. So actually, what I've been thinking about, I guess, is is things other than politics, and it's just been. A breath of fresh
1: air. Well,
0: to not I've, have I've to been thinking
1: about taking a holiday, so I yourself. could like just be on Twitter a lot and read all the things that I've saved <laughs> on Facebook that I've never yeah, get a chance yeah, to read. Right. Like just get through that huge backlog of reading that I've that I've got. And it's not even like backlog of reading like serious books. Um, it's just stuff that I've saved on Facebook and and kind of weird intra left debates on people's walls on Facebook that I also have to kind of catch up with. Um, so I, I just hit a hold. Haven't they?
2: Uh, but, but aren't they kind of out of date by the time that you get to them on your on your holiday?
1: Take <laughs> two weeks guy, off work. And, like, and the guy piling in at the end of the fight. Argument. Everyone's dusted themselves off. They're like, okay, you know, like let's just agree to disagree, and you pile in like again. This guy's a fucking cunt. Did you hear, hear this? And then, you know, no one likes that.
2: It's a good strategy though. Wait, kind of two weeks until everybody else has forgotten about it, and you've formulated a great point, and they just go in and just destroy people on all these all these arguments. um but no that's that
1: that isn't actually
2: (laughs) plugging plugging like the blog that you've
1: written about this
2: yeah um but no so I haven't really um that's why I'm that's why I'm so excited I know Phil's introduction to listeners probably he probably sounded really jazzed really kind of upbeat to, to be talking about this but I I am I also listened to the other episodes of the podcast that I wasn't on and I thought they were they were great. They're better than the ones with me on. So <laughs> I might just move myself for the rest of the episode and see what happens. Um,
0: uh, interesting. Um, what about you, Alex? What have you been thinking about, apart from taking a holiday to catch up with Facebook?
1: Well, I mean, I, I was just watching this video of of, a, of like on Instagram of a of a jaguar like jumping into a river and killing uh, like an alligator or, or you know similar sort of animal, and it's kind of awesome because you think of like jaguars are kind of soft. You know mammals and this other things like really fucking hard and prehistoric and he fucking kills it drags it out by the neck and he's gonna eat it. Um, it's it really cool. It did the thing? Did the thing? Other than other than. Wait, the- wait! The- is that- this is this that's is this a good.
0: political metaphor? Is it like what exactly is the meaning of watching this uh this savagery from the jungle?
1: Oh, I don't know. I was just not being. I was not kept entertained enough by what was going on. So <laughs> I just watching this Instagram. Video of this jaguar. It's really cool, though. You should check it out. It's National Geographic. It's really awesome animal stuff. Um,
0: I do. Not I, don't really, I don't really. really I don't really have. A, have no, a, I, I have, a have no material. response to that.
2: No, I don't really have a materialist analysis of this. I don't really. I don't know where to go other than the. Um. Yeah. You know. Well,
1: I mean, I guess. I, to, my, I guess a, it, it no, it's. No, a, I know I mean, that, that being warm-blooded um, is is good, and and you know, despite the idea that you're cold-blooded and closed off and you've got this hard exterior shell um, would seem like it would make you a stronger opponent but in fact it doesn't being warm-blooded and, and dynamic you know means that you can kill your prey um, and politically, Wait, do
0: alligators have do alligators have shells
1: the alligators are, are, are the fascists and and the Jaguars are are the future
0: I was gonna say maybe the right response the right materialist response is a boycott of National Geographic as a cold war era popular imperial anthropology for <laughs> 1950s america
2: <laughs> on, on, the other hand, may, on, may, on the other <laughs> hand maybe it's it's national geographic which has a the best analysis of politics it's a power struggle right it's not about nice words it's about who can grab whom by the by the neck and drag them up up a wall right so it's got a very you know a very power based um, analysis of interactions between jaguars and, and crocodiles, alligators. Anyway,
1: the other thing that's been distracting my, my puny distracted brain um, is this terrible song. Like it's on the radio. I never listened to the radio, but you know, it was like in an Uber and, and was playing it and it drives me crazy. It's this kind of faux, faux reggae song called rude by, by a band called magic. I, lo- I had to look it up based on the lyrics and I don't know if you've heard this, but it's, it's like terrible white reggae pop fusion. And you just think, I mean, why aren't people still doing this? The the world suffered Alex, you know the, that the world suffered U B forty like ages ago. Like we've already done U B forty. Why why repeat it? We know the consequences of first, it.
2: First it's like First is tragedy, second is fast. But, well, but you but yeah. you even mentioned this song to us before we started recording and neither of us had said that we'd heard it. So why are you bringing it up now? I have no idea. Well, because li- <laughs> li-
1: listeners might listeners might know it. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just I'm not just talking to you guys. Um, you're just making a connection with the listeners. Oh, you've heard this song.
2: I've heard this song. We're the same, you and I. Okay. Yeah, you're trying well, to anyway. like get
0: down with the listeners. You're patronizing our listeners, man. You're condescending to them.
1: Okay, fine, fine. I mean, I, I just wanted I just wanted to have a little bitch about the song, um, and I, I just thought I thought it might work as a nice segue because repeating terrible barbaric failures um, is, uh, is might be a topic of the conversation and just like you be 40 so like the Nazis
0: so um, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the basics so you've got to be have been living under a rock um, for the last 10 days or so if you aren't so out of all of that mayhem that's been kind of reverberating throughout um, Western politics, in response we're going to be talking about that and thinking about it a bit and i want to get responses from um from uh from everyone on the show but also to put it in some context, so I mean we can think about precedents for the controversy over statues, right? Um, both, I mean, obviously perhaps sort of more distant um, end of things with the um, toppling of all the old Soviet statues of Lenin in, on in the beginning of the Ukrainian civil war a few years ago. But in the Western precedent, you had the "Roads Must Fall" campaign, both in South Africa and Oxford in the UK, and these were campus campaigns to bring down statues of the 19th century um, imperialist Cecil Rhodes whose ill-gotten gains were used for various kind of philanthropic projects including supporting Rhodes scholars and whose statue adorns certain campuses in South Africa and Britain and so that's the most kind of immediate, immediate um, precedent so the question I guess arising from that is whether there's any difference between what we've seen in Charlottesville and then other kind of Confederate statues that have since been pulled down across the South by local activists, the South of the U.S., with the Perodes Fall campaign. And generally, I mean, if there's any kind of um, politics with regards to toppling statues, and if there's a difference, say, between <laughs> toppling statues that are in educational institutions and toppling statues that are in public places, toppling statues that are associated with particular political regimes, what's the politics of it?
1: I think it's very hard to take a position personally um, on it in a kind of general rule about what you think about taking down statues. So I don't know. For me, it's it's more of a question which I will come on to of a strategic question of you know from the position of the left, should you be pursuing a a policy where you're trying to get statues taken down, or is it a distraction, or so on and so forth?
0: No, sure, okay. So, but then let's make it specific. Um, So. Did you support the roads must fall campaign, and do you support the attempts to take down the um, Confederate statues in the South?
1: I think I think it needs to be examined. The concrete example has to be examined in itself, and not have it. I don't think there's a general position. I think if one can have a general position, is that one should be skeptical of attempts to erase the past. At the same time, public art or you know monuments to to the past should also not be things which necessarily are permanent. That's that's a kind of mealy-mouthed answer. But that's why I say that it's probably better to focus on the specific question of So in the in these quick cases of both of Rhodes Must Fall and in these Confederate statues, you say, okay, fair enough, take down the statues if you want, but you seem to be fighting the battles of the past rather than confronting what's ahead of you and what is actually the objective in taking down these statues who what is who's the enemy here what are you trying to achieve is it to um is it to try to offend those you know defenders of the confederacy for example okay fine is that is that a strategic objective i mean would not fighting you know to take a much more relevant example would not fighting against police brutality be a more more worthwhile objective probably the defenders would say that these things go hand in hand uh, and that the symbolic politics of taking down statues goes hand in hand with fighting police brutality today, which case you could say, OK, fair enough. But it's interesting that the taking down of statues seems to take precedence over um, over actual material gains today.
0: What do you think, George?
2: Yeah. So I think my, my first observation is I didn't see anybody um, with any placards. Which I think would have been the most um, most obvious, easy win. Saying leave it alone. Did anybody else see? <laughs> I was with that? Leave that's your Okay, Phil's, Phil's just not. You need, like, in that. you need like
1: a hyphen. Um, like leave. Uh, it's it's a bit it's a bit contrived. I'm just, yeah, okay, Well, fine. Right, so that, I that was my first the aim,
0: the aim of the podcast isn't to give slogans to old right protesters, uh, irrespective of, um, I'm just saying this for our listeners' benefit, irrespective of what our uh, views on statues might be. Okay.
2: Well, you have your objectives and I'll have mine, so that's fine. Um, no, I think there's a, a, a very valid point that Alex made, which is that the, the, it's kind of a, almost a displacement sometimes of a struggle against something to a struggle against a symbol of something. So that's, I mean, so that's why there's, there's, I guess, a lot of, a lot of psychic energy discharged on these, on these kind of pro-anti-statue struggles. But I feel like, so just coming back from holiday, I I feel a lot more distance from this than other recent political events of maybe the last six months, because I didn't, I didn't watch it unravel in the build up, the event, the reaction, the presidential reaction, the Reaction okay, to we the,
0: get it, George. Yeah. We get it. You've been on holiday. We the understand. initial
2: hot take, the reaction to the hot takes. So I did. I mean, but basically, what so what that meant was that I, I kind of did didn't really understand the like the, this event as something about the statue. It seemed like this was this was this was just the the symbol behind which the the unite the right rally happened. And maybe I'm missing something. I'm there, kind of there to be persuaded that the statue in and of itself played an important role but I mean any, any society will have so many symbols of, of, of its history of which there will be some parts which will be dodgy enough that, that people will, will rightly want to protest against but it seems like there could have been so many other touch points that the actual specific statue of, of Lee in Charlottesville seems quite contingent to me but that could just be my ignorance.
0: I guess there are two things, I mean, that are worth kind of mentioning, which are maybe, you know, more or less important, but tie into what Alex was saying about the importance of context in these um, cultural contests over symbols such as statues. So these Confederate, all these Confederate statues in the South, apparently the overwhelming, or all of them, in fact, as far as I know or what I've read, they all um, stem from either the 20th century or from the late 19th century, so that they're not kind of monuments um, to the dead that came in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War itself, but come from the era in which, after the failure of reconstruction in the aftermath of the American Civil War, um, the way in which Southern elites managed to um, subvert the process of Black emancipation to contain it, um, and that these monuments were effectively, these statues were monuments to the reassertion of um, both of white supremacy and to the effectiveness of Southern elites in blunting the um, emancipatory effects of the, of the Civil War. And I guess, I mean, there is a difference, say, between Rhodes Must Fall, which is a campus, and in the context of Oxford University as well, is like a campus protest involving, you know, what seemed to me at the time, at least, um, the assertion of a new elite against an old elite. And this is what made me so sceptical, in particular, of the Roads Must Fall campaign. I mean, um, it's the context is an educational institution. Um, so it's kind of remote from day-to-day politics, you know, outside of the kind of febrile, overheated social media politics of the left and the academic left in particular. Um, so it had little to do with that. It's um, It was all spearheaded and led by people who were tremendously... Um, privileged and are going to be leading you know are going to be in senior positions of power over the next 30 to 50 years and so for me the roads must fall campaign independently of what you might think about um uh the past or you know how we should respond to monument historical monuments and so on it was very clearly it seemed to me the self-assertion of a narrow political elite establishing their authority, their new authority and credentials against those of a past, the inheritance of a past elite, and shiny new kind of multicultural globalized elite post you know, fed on kind of post-colonial and critical theory. Um, and that they're establishing their own identities as against the heritage of the past. And that seems to me to be fundamentally different from the kinds of protests that are going on um, over the statues in the Trump Trump era USA, I think
1: that's right. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a useful contrast to draw because one, the the latter is clearly a much more live issue, um, and again we can come on to whether the specific tactics adopted by Antifa, for example, against the alt right are appropriate and they're the right response. But one can at least say that there is a, a seems to be at least a resurgent right which you know uh, there should be a struggle against uh, in which but you know, old imperialists are not a live threat. I mean, there are new forms of imperialism which maybe should be challenged and so on, but taking down such roads is not, you know, doesn't advance that cause in any way.
0: So, I mean, following on from that then is the, um, if, I mean, if you wanna, if we wanna concede some measure of legitimacy to the campaign, or if one was minded to concede, to concede some kind of measure of legitimacy to the campaign to remove these um, statues, then how far does it go? Um, and so if people, if some of our listeners, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners have seen the Vice documentary, which has um, reached lots of people over social media, and which... Um, had interviews with some of the protesters who were there to go again who were against this you know there to kind of pull down the statues, and they were talking about the Confederate era statues to General Lee in the same breath as they were talking about um, statues to Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, so one of the founding fathers of the u s and greatest revolutionaries of the American Revolution, but also notoriously um, a slave owner himself and even um, George Washington, the first president of the u s um was also um notoriously a slave owner and so i guess the question would be then to the anti far pr- protesters um and to those pulling down the statues how far do they want to go or well, what do they think is going to be achieved do they draw a distinction between um statues to secession and division of the us and to a defense of slavery and to statues against the founding fathers and their different outlook on the revolution and the place of slavery in the us
2: no i guess i guess my whole of, my whole kind of starting point on this is that statues are just they're just good for collecting pigeon shit as i think lenin said i mean i mean i guess that my starting point is is kind of a an indifference towards statues
1: <laughs> yeah you're statue agnostic and which is fair enough i think that's the right position and, no sorry, i'm pretty Phil, sure with, they exist the, i think the thing with the the statue question again. I'm again. I'm I'm a statue statue agnostic as well. Uh, I don't care that much. But I think it's a little. We have to examine this at least in the context of who is advancing the agenda, and are the left wing protesters being reactive, or are they um, seeking to? In the case of the roads must fall, one take the, take the initiative. I think in the case of these the statues uh, commemorating the Confederacy. Phil already drew out the important point that these were not immediately after the fact, but ones which were um, erected much later on um, as a sort of resurgence of, of a reactionary right. Um, and in the case of southern states, these there are protesters who are actively drawing attention to these and are waving the Confederate flag and are, Pretty much starting the you know as it we're starting the argument over um, the symbols of the Confederacy. So in that sense, it's it's understandable that the left should then react against that and say, no, we don't want this here. Let's take down these old monuments. Um, so I think that's another interesting think, contrast to draw.
2: But isn't is, isn't there an easier argument to be made, which is essentially rather than take down this monument, replace Lee with with a, a monument to somebody else? So basically, because then you can say, okay, we, we, we recognize this era of, of history, but we reject the idea that, that these slave owners, they're the ones who basically built America. And instead we have this other, this other person who we think is worthy of statuization. Um and we we want to make a statue to them instead of verb.
1: Sorry it's a good verb, it's a good ver- it's a good verb that statuization. I mean then it's not like it sounds like you're turning someone into stone. Uh yeah, you could do you could just get a get Medusa Someone, someone tweeted an interesting uh, sort of response to this, which is a, a South America-based journalist, uh, who tweeted a picture of uh, a Paraguayan statue. So there was a, a statue of the dictator, Alfredo Stroessner, and what they did with it is they put it sort of in a concrete block, two kind of concrete blocks nearly squishing against one another with the mangled bits of the old statue projecting from it. Um, so it's kind of a nice way of neither erasing history nor leaving, leaving these uh, objectionable old monuments to stand. Um, it's kind of a nice kind of dialectical response to to the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think there were those. And there were some others um, of uh, Soviet era statues that are just decapitated at the knee. So you have like the remnants of the legs, um, but nothing above that. Another way, I think the Hungarians did that with statues of Stalin. Um so I mean I think you know there are kind of responses um which aren't simply kind of annihilating or negating the past but also recognize the um you know recognize the need to register the and the kind of um a political antipathy and opposition towards a commemoration of some of something in particular. And it seems to me, I mean, there's no insofar as those statues um commemorate and signify um rebellion against the against the idea of the union in the us and the defense of slavery within the secessionist states why shouldn't they be in terms of the public culture of the us to which all you know it seems to me it doesn't seem to me to be outrageous that the us as a society and as a polity should expect all of its citizens to um to vest their kind of political loyalty to the idea of the union. Um, You know, what form the union might take and whether or not um, you might wish to see kind of reform within the government of the union and different political structures to emerge. But the idea of the union itself and that it shouldn't, that it has and that slavery has no place within it. It doesn't seem to me to be an outrageous expectation or demand that all states within the US should recognize that and that um, the kind of nostalgia for um, the publicly um, sanctified nostalgia for the good old cause of the South, um, why that should still be tolerated um, in the present seems to me beyond me. So the fact that like some municipalities already in, I think Charlottesville itself have been quietly removing statues overnight seems to me to be, you know, I mean, welcome essentially you know, like I mean, I tend to agree with both what both of you guys have said. At the end of the day, um, I think it's a, essentially a displacement activity. Many more kind of important problems. Um, so speaking about that, is to kind of think about why is it then that it, this kind of statue stuff kind of absorbs so much energy and seems to become so febrile. And I mean, so I was away off social media for um, uh, for the last kind of uh, four weeks or so, and I come back on. And you have kind of serious people, um, not just kind of crazy people, but on Twitter talking about, oh, is this like, are we seeing, are we seeing the beginnings, the incipient beginnings of a new American civil war? And this kind of total jibber jabber craziness, which I just don't, you know, it's just kind of so overheated and weird. And you're talking about 500 white supremacists compared to, say, milli- literally millions of KKK members in the 1920s. 500 white supremacists and people are talking about the U.S. being on the verge of fascism.
1: Right. But I think the interesting thing is that there does seem to be a resurgence on the right. I mean, at the end of the day, Trump was elected and uh, is a racist uh, or at least you know a bigot in some sense and has been, to some extent, I think it's right to say empowering uh, sections of of. The radical right, the far right, uh, and the, I think it's right to be concerned about that. I don't. Th- I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about the extent response to it, um, but I don't think it can be denied that there is a certain resurgent right. That the alt right has emerged as a sort of online counterculture uh, now trying to take to the streets. Um, but at the same time, as as people like Angela Nagel have pointed out, Charlottesville does mark to some extent a, a, a division within that between the sort of far right and uh, the sort of alt-light who who pretty quickly distanced themselves from Charlottesville. I think regardless, I've been struck by the extent to which Charlottesville has become an event, like it or not. I did check Twitter intermittently. Uh, I wasn't on it very much, but while it was happening kind of last weekend, I was struck by the fact that nearly all the tweets like across my timeline um, and on Facebook were exclusively about this and about, and of course about Trump's has to be said, despicable response to it. Um, I think the interesting question to ask, I mean, I think, and because kind of one of the thematics, I guess, on this podcast we often do, right, is that, uh, is to look at sort of problematics for the left. And it does seem that the effect of this on the left is kind of a problem. It's that um, for all that there's been a, a rollback against identity politics over the past, what, six months, a year, At least from a certain section of the more materialist left, this seems to throw things back into chaos again, and uh, and to roll back some of the kind of meager advances that have been made. I mean, do do you see? Do you see that as well?
2: No, I I think I actually, I think I disagree with my learned friend over here. I think it was a, I think it was a non-event. I don't, I don't think that there, there were really any lasting. I don't think that there will be any lasting consequences of Charlottesville, except for perhaps, um, and the, you kind of touched on this, the the end of the old light, perhaps. So I think this is Angela Nagel's point again, in a really interesting backer article there, um, where she says, okay, so this, I think, will actually weaken or reduce the number of people who will flock behind a particular banner because no longer can the defensive irony be used by these kind of... Um, transgressive shit posters who would be like oh i'm saying this are you are you triggered are you like oh you know and and then if you try to say you're actually being serious they're like no the joke's on you I'm, I'm just i'm just playing with the with the boundaries but that's not possible anymore because clearly there are a group of hardened kind of pseudo-separatist um, militia nuts who one of whom at least is is willing to go to kind of murderous lengths to to you know, defends their their particular version of of of, of, of the right. Um, so that that's maybe one consequence. But the other consequence is just perhaps to reveal what I think we all always knew already, which was that the the, the libs, the liberals in America, are basically willing, um, in extremists, to go over to to fascism. They they are more scared of a even mildly social democratic program than they are of a on the whole of a um, what you could say is a, is a kind of proto fascist program this is exactly what happened in in Italy um, at least in my reading of it so I think my my understanding of this is that it essentially it kind of it's it, it separates out the alt light from the alt right and it separates out perhaps the the liberal response from the you know the, the anti-fascist left in America, which is perhaps not that large, but seems what in mean? fact. Taken see, this it is stand. interesting.
1: I, I see that I see this rather differently, right? I see. I mean, to to, uh, to spell it out in a sort of narrative for me, you've had over the past six months, for example, the 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 growing of the DSA, uh, this kind of discourse on inequality being the kind of predominant uh, sort of discourse, a return to sort of material questions and a, an emphasis on movement building and so on, and a, and a move away from. Uh, identity politics, however much uh, identity politics dominates Twitter and Facebook, um, there seems to be at least some progressive steps, right? Um, at least towards one might say, okay, maybe it's only a kind of limited social democratic politics, but you know, the fight for healthcare and, and for universal healthcare in the US and so on has been one of the brighter sparks in 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 the or brighter moments in in the recent uh, six months, I guess. Um, but what Charlottesville does for me is that it throws the whole thing back to, see, there are fascists taking over. We need to defend, basically, the identity politics positions that have been hegemonic on the left for the past, you know, five to ten years. And so, the, so for me, the reaction takes two forms, right? One is a kind of complacent, comfortable, popular frontism. So you get liberals and the liberal left uh, retweeting people like John Kerry or John McCain or Arnold Schwarzenegger denouncing Trump you know, this kind of comfortable, like we're all standing against fascism, the kind of popular front strategy. Um, and even, for example, this widely shared post, which uh, says something like, see, Hillary warned us about this, and, and you know, accompanying a video of uh, of Hillary uh, warning of the rise of the far right um, by electing Trump. So this seems to strengthen the center, um, and not at the expense of the right, but at the expense of the left, um, and basically does away with any attempt uh, of the left to define an independent position, a position independent of centrist liberalism. And then the other response for me is, is the kind of Antifa response, um, but which really is is more about a sort of left-wing purism, like denouncing anyone who seems to try to be the least bit sophisticated about what motivates Trump supporters, or, and I guess what's even worse, is attacking civil rights as complicit with the far right. And this is, for me, the most concerning uh, consequence of, of Charlottesville which is that you've seen lots of people for example attacking the ACLU for defending white supremacists right of assembly which is to say all of our uh, right to assembly or blaming free speech um, as enabling the, the right um, and you've seen lots of this so you've had to, you, you've seen Glenn Greenwald for example coming out um, quite strongly and 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 you know it's, it's worth to read his article defending free speech but of course because the right then Raise the, banner of, uh, raise the banner of free speech. There's lots of sort of supposedly antifa leftists who say, see, you know, the, the alt-right is, uh, is endorsing these views, therefore these views defending civil rights, for example, must be wrong. Yeah, but you just have to
2: respond to that by just saying, I, I, you can clearly tell that I've been off Twitter for a little while because I'm, I can sort of say these things without any, uh, without any worry. But you can just say that's, that's wrong, right? You have to defend free speech. Sure. I'm,
1: sure I'm, I, all, I'm, all I'm pointing out, all I'm drawing out is the fact that, for me, the consequence of, of Charlottesville seemed to be pretty deleterious for the left because it throws it back into the, you know, either I think kind it, of the, the, the kind of alliance between the left and the liberal center and this kind of hysterical identity politics, which broaches no discussion and sees any questioning itself as being complicit with fascists. I mean, and, and that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think you I, mean,
0: I think you're absolutely right, Alex. And I think But the, I think it uh, doesn't
2: it just reveal that weakness. It doesn't it doesn't cause it. It I mean it just shows that this is a you know, this is Well
0: no, but it accentuates it, doesn't it? Test. I mean nobody but I mean nobody nobody had heard of Antifa like uh, a few weeks ago, right? Except for losers like us who hang around in weird Facebook groups, right? I mean, um, you know, like now like everybody knows about this. Um, incredibly kind of weird, introverted, sectarian, um, cultural left phenomenon that now has kind of um, broken through onto the streets. Um, And it should be said, I mean, you know, part of this story is that um, I think, you know, like Alex mentioned, the fact that um, you have major Republican party figures, business leaders who have been piling out of Trump's kind of advisory councils, um, and they're all anti-fascists, you know, in the great tradition of, um, in the great tradition of anti-fascism in terms of politically, um, defending the status quo and expelling and, um, as a way of kind of, um, policing dissent combined with this, um, at its core, this kind of weird left-wing purity on the part of people of like anti-fast style movements. Um, and you have this kind of weird postmodern version of, um, popular frontism with Mitt Romney, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Alex mentioned, all kind of tweeting in support of um, anti-fascism. But I wanted to ask something to Alex specifically on this thing. So um, surely, I mean, isn't the, you know, while you can kind of point to the demo, the Democratic Socialist um, Convention and the attempts around, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, Bernie supporters to mobilize at the grassroots and to take over kind of local democratic campaigning, um, the focus on healthcare and so on. I mean, whatever you might think of that, but I mean, surely the, um, it wouldn't simply supersede the kind of campus identity politics of the last 10 years. What will happen rather is that you get the split, right? And that you'll see that the, um, the identity politics will remain and will um, become more vociferous and assertive precisely because now there is kind of, it is in competition. There is a competition on the left for what the future of the left looks like. So surely, I mean, why would you expect it to be superseded? It'll stay there and there will be kind of, it'll kind of try to reassert itself against the, against the new kind, against the attempt to go beyond it.
1: Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I'm I'm not, I'm, but I mean, when I say supersede, it's the fact that the democratic socialists of America, again, whatever you may think of it and whatever its limitations is materialist politics, and that has a potential for actually having a social base in real life, not just on Twitter and in university campuses. Um, And so, yeah, it is a competition within the left, but one has a possibility of superseding it, whereas uh, identity politics, as we know, is a a complete dead end um, and doesn't really have a base beyond um, certain relatively well-off sections of, of society. So in that sense, I think what what I was trying to attention to is precisely that there is a competition on the left, um, and that the ones with with more dynamism behind them and more energy behind them seem to be the materialists. To put it to put it kind of you know in this a bit maybe crude division between the materialists and the culturalists left. But I think that's that's the right way to pose to pose the sort of um, conflict within the left. And um, Charlottesville seems to throw it all back into. Put it puts the debate back onto the terms of the identitarians and the cultural culturalist left, whereas what we've seen over the past six months has been you know a changing of the agenda changing the question which is the only way you can defeat identity politics actually tackling it head on and getting into these interminable you know horrible debates online we know leads nowhere you know you have to change you have to change the question right reorientate it to the question of of people's needs of um People's livelihoods of things that concern most people and not these abstract, representative, symbolic debates around statues or whatever.
2: No, I have to say, I have to say, I disagree with this. I think the most, the quickest way to achieve social change is through, is through podcasting. I mean, <laughs> posting is good, but podcasting is better because you get your thoughts right in people's ears. Um, Wait, so, but, but, but like, no, I mean,
1: take, taking that on, we should, we should be on YouTube because if you actually have video as well as audio, you're like, it's basically, you know, not just multiplying by two, but like to the power of two, your your social force cause, squared. Cause you're, you're, yeah. Squared? It's squared.
2: Yeah, I yeah. mean that's. Think about that. That's four squared is sixteen viewers. You do the math. <laughs> yeah. um, ha- I mean, haven't we? Haven't we? We've talked about this briefly, but isn't it? Isn't it now just becoming more and more obvious that the 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 protesters the pro-Lee, not the... And, oh, this is a good link to our to our guest next week, eventually.
0: Oh, he'll be so happy to be compared <laughs> to uh, the great general defending slavery and secession general of Lee. the federation. Yeah, General Lee. Just he'll to clarify, uh, Lee.
1: That, that's George making a... It's not a callback, I guess it's a... What do you call it? A f- foreshadowing. It's a it? call forward. It's a call forward. It's a foreshadowing of, uh, of our guest next week who's called Lee, no relation to... Um, Confederate General Robert yeah, E. Lee. He's a, he, he's a he's
2: a he's a he's a just a massive adverb, isn't he? Lee. That you'll get that one in a minute. Um,
0: well, I actually had a serious point. Oh, it's like
2: L
1: Y. It's an adverb. Oh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. That's it for my change. good grammar, yeah. jokes Okay. I think that, the Phil Phil th- take
1: charge. Passed. Move this on.
0: Yeah, I was going to. No, 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 no. a there's, there's the serious moment, point here. I think is the, the moment has passed, George.
2: Fine, that you know that
0: that would have been the best
2: point I'd ever made on this podcast, and you're okay, depriving the okay.
0: Make it very quickly. Uh
2: No, so it's just basically. I, I mean, aren't aren't we just basically seeing the the return of identity politics in in you know this is white nationalist supremacist um the dickheads who were who were who were um, pro Lee. Um, they're, they're like, that's, that's white male identity politics, it's the wounded pride of these people who think that life should be, um, should be easier than it already is for them as, as, as white males. And so it just, you know, isn't this becoming clearer for the American left that identity politics has its mirror in this, in this quite, um, uh, in, in this very specific form of, of white kind of pseudo-ethno-nationalism?
1: Yeah but, it's, yeah, but that's I mean, right. The, that, but it's self-perpetuating. I mean, it's it's a downward spiral. Yeah. There is no recognition and go. Oh shit! They're just the mirror image of us. So we have to do something else. It's that the, it it justifies the perpetuation yeah. of identity politics. And you know, the inter- for, for the past for the past twenty years, you could say to um, someone um, advocating uh, that you know, there's there's fascists at the gates and that we need to um, defend all these various identities and so on and not have a a broader based movement and so on that, you know, you could always say, yeah, okay, but where, there aren't actually fascists marching on the streets bar, you know, some lonely weirdos. And here you actually have, you know, and this is a question, I guess you actually have a terrorist attack perpetuated um, on left wing protesters. You have, you know, white nationalists marching. And so it it entirely justifies it entirely justifies that approach. Um, of and the, the approach of racializing all political questions as opposed to trying to move beyond a racialized understanding.
0: Yeah, two things, I think. So, I mean, you know, bearing in mind, right, so, I mean, it's not like this is the first time that um, neo-Nazis have marched in Western cities. Um, and five, you know, bearing in mind it's 500. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I don't think, I mean, I know you would have got, like, um, you'd have got, you know, larger kind of um, national front marches, in Britain in the 70s, say, for example, or probably even in the 80s, um, compared to 500 of these losers um, today. But also, um, and taking on board all your points, Alex, about the interdependence of these identitarian movements. But I would say I'm not sure about this idea that um, it's kind of um, molly, the molly coddled, you know, molly coddled white men, because I think that would be to concede to. Um, I mean, or at least as much as in all kind of identity politics is about Molly Coddling. But, you know, alienated, angry, cut adrift, um, disenchanted. I mean, there's lots of kind of things you could talk about. But I don't, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't kind of concede to this idea that there is, um, that they feel that their privilege is being eroded and that it's a matter of them kind of being defensively reacting to their privilege. I think the kind of the profile, the sociological and political profile isn't i don't think we need to um buy into that image into explanations that are based on kind of who has more privilege or less privilege
2: <clears throat> no i i i know I, I think i think there is if, privilege is maybe not exactly the right word but there is definitely a, a sense of entitlement which is which is wounded or um an inflated sense of of worth which is which is not realized so if you look at the guy who um who I can't remember his name now, even I should have done the research. I should have that in front of me. The guy who drove the the car into the, the protesters, he was like a, that's a classic biography of one of these people. So like went into the army, couldn't make it, went home, was living with his, his mother and then had an alter, a physical altercation with her because, because, you know, he was, he just wanted to just sit in his bedroom playing video games all day. Um, but like, that's the, that's the kind of classic biography of somebody who feels like their natural status at the top of society is, is, is not being realised. So, I mean, privilege isn't the right word. Maybe it's entitlement. But that's but not isn't that an important part of no, no,
1: it.
0: No, I yeah, mean, but this is very important. He's not privileged, right? I mean, the people who are leading the Roads Must Fall campaign in Oxford are much more privileged than him in every kind of literal sense. So, I mean, he might have kind of wounded pride and he might kind of expect that society owes him more um, than he has, you know. But I mean, to talk about kind of um, that kind of sociological demographic and psychological profile of somebody, um, to talk about it in terms of privilege is just totally meaningless. It has no kind of um, relationship, not to mention the fact that it also excuses as a political actor. Can make yeah, that's a request why I
1: said, that said privilege not the right word. Well, that's right. I think, can, we, can I make a request that we don't use the term privilege? Because talking even about rel- relative privilege is pretty senseless. Pri- privilege is associated with the aristocracy. It's absolute. It's not a question of you know someone being a little bit better off or having a higher income or so. Yeah, absolutely. Privilege is an absolute question, not a relative one. Yeah. So, so, then so, so, I, think, so I think George is right that to, to, to say that we should use the term entitlement and that White nationalists are motivated by a sense of challenge, entitlement, in part because the national political discourse in the US and and across many Western countries is one which privileges various minority identities and they feel challenged by that. I mean, you know, fuck them, too bad. But but I think that's more the dynamic.
0: Well, so, I mean, it connects to um, the profile, connects to um, other profiles, uh, which is the kind of the... Attempt to use um, the attempt to use violence to reassert some kind of personal identity and to kind of um, carve out some kind of meaningful space through violent self-assertion, which is to say jihadism. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of the kind of left-liberal response has been to insist that this is an act of terrorism, the uh, murder of Heather Hare, that it should be treated as an act of supremacist terrorism. And the motivation behind these kinds of claims seems to be very um, obvious, right? Because you have this similar kind of tactic used, I mean, just kind of replicated in Barcelona on a much kind of wider um, and more catastrophic scale. Um, Driving a car into people, wounding with the intent to kind of maim and to kill and to wound. Um, As we mentioned, kind of similar demographic profile in terms of the perpetrators. Um, And also this, the... I mean the claim that the the, the violence as a way of um, of of asserting a kind of particular kind of identity. So to claim that it's terrorism on the part of the left is to say to say kind of basically look, um, this isn't kind of a racial thing. It's not just look, it's not just kind of brown crazy Muslims who commit terrorism. Everybody is capable of doing terrorism, and that terrorism should also be in the interests of equity. Um, and being kind of consistent and um, a proper kind of extension of justice, everyone should be, everyone who commits kind of similar deeds should be labeled a terrorist. And if we don't do so, it exposes our racism um, because we're willing to call Muslims terrorists, but we're unwilling to call white supremacists terrorists. And so that means that it just kind of exposes the intrinsic um, privilege and um, in kind of um, covert white supremacy of Western states in their refusal to label white nationalist crimes as terrorism. Um, And it seems to me like that's entirely wrong. Uh, The war on terror is already bad enough, right? Uh, Why try and make the argument to extend it instead of just seeing it as a criminal act? um, And, you know, clearly we can clearly identify it as a crime motivated by white supremacy. But the idea that that for it to be politically counted as such, for it to be seen as a political act, we need to, justify the extension of the war on terrorism and then start worrying about radicalization of um, of white of young white men online and it just seems to me utterly wrong-headed and the justification for the extension and legitimation of the war on terror so who's going to re-legitimate the war on terror it's going to be leftists demanding a new war on terror against um, white supremacists
1: I might not go that far, but I do find this sort of debate incredibly frustrating because it just descends into whataboutery and you've got two different images of society from each side which are completely non-compatible. So you have on the left uh, an idea that there's widespread Islamophobia and targeting of Muslims and that whenever there's a terrorist attack, there's an attempt to, um, to... Um, associate by guilt all Muslims and therefore that needs to be resisted and so whenever there's an episode of, of white terrorism that needs to be drawn attention to as a sort of equivalence. And on the right you get the exact mirror image which is that you have a view that Um, Muslims are mollycoddled that they are held up as noble victims of everything and that um, there's a refusal to denounce Islamism. There's a refusal to denounce perhaps Islam's complicity with Islamic terrorism, rightly or wrongly, and, um, and that the left just likes to bang on about white terrorists, white nationalists, and so on, where there's much fewer incidents of these relative to Islamist attacks and and so on. So they're basically mirror images of each other, and the debate is constantly one of what about you? Well, what about these guys? What about your guys? What about your guys? And it's just a completely unedifying debate. There's also another thing, which is, I mean, on technical terms, n- many of these cases of so-called terrorism don't really deserve the title. They, it's, a, it's a kind of lashing out of nihilist violence. But terrorism, you know, it's a tactic, and it's not really clear what the, what the This tactic serves strategically. You know there aren't often demands made by uh, accompanying these terrorist acts, supposedly terrorist acts. So what are they trying to achieve? Um, So in that sense, I I kind of. But that doesn't.
0: But that doesn't get us anywhere, right? Because that's just to say that the character of um, the character of this kind of violence has changed. The character of terrorist violence has changed. So you know, ISIS doesn't make any. Any particular demands in with its um, with the they recognise they claim responsibility for, but make no no demands associated with um, particular terrorism, and so you can we can say you know there's kind of nihilistic violence which we see um, as with the say the attack on the protesters um, in Charlottesville, and we have nihilistic violence on the part of Islamists which so it's the same nihilistic violence so why don't we just um, have the same response of the security services to it. To be, no, to be consistent.
1: One, one doesn't follow from the other. I mean, I'm certainly not advocating the latter. Um, I'm just saying that in term Certainly, I think George has already um, drawn attention to the profile of uh, of the man who allegedly drove into the protesters. And you know, we discussed this in relation to the Manchester bombings back in episode six. I think it was um, looking at, for example, uh, Olivier Roy's work on um, the, you know, the kind of demographic profile of uh, of Islamist terrorists, and there is something similar. You know, and and I think we could even go further. I think uh, the kind of school shooters um, of the past could could would, would you know like the, the Columbine shooters would today be kind of alt writers, right? That would be it gives it's a it's a way of giving expression to to sort of frustration with the contemporary world and and the sort of nihilistic outburst. Um, so I think in that sense, yeah, we can say they are they are similar. They're maybe two faces of the same coin. That doesn't mean we should but I think, that that doesn't mean that the response should be, hey, state, go after these guys, not these guys. I mean that's that's that, mm. I, mean, I think that's totally self-defeating. I, I think we're agreed on that point.
2: But I think I think Phil raised a really interesting point or possibility, which is that what would happen if there's kind of a a woke war on terror, that there's like a this idea of like, okay, <clears throat> we've like war on the war on terror didn't fail because it's intrinsically unwinnable, but because we were targeting the wrong people. And now we've actually got the right people to target and we, you know, we can use different or similar strategy or, or whatever. But but basically that now there could be the so the white supremacists are the real terrorists. They've they've now committed an act of terrorism. So they're therefore, logically, all terrorists. And so but I've already
0: I mean, I've already be... seen the Guardian columnists, the Guardian columnist going on about um, we need to take it. We need to take account of white men being radicalised online. Right. With reference to the alt-right.
2: Oh yeah, Um, that—that's yeah. I mean, but take take account in what.
0: Well, I mean, but just—I mean, reinforcing what you're saying, right? So that you have this kind of move to say that we need to the same kinds of tactics, concerns, debates, um, strategies about dealing with radicalization of Muslim young Muslim men. We need to extend it to a wider population. So very literally justifying the extension of the war on terror.
2: I don't. I don't. I don't have too much to say about that, other than that it will obviously be a fucking disaster. Um, but I don't know if the if liberalism is sufficiently. I, I, yeah, I. I don't know. I think that's that's that seems like a a bit of a worrying possibility.
0: A woke more... war on terror. So but you I heard think, it here th- first.
1: But yeah, I, I, I mean, it, well, I, I, that might be that might be putting the ter- putting it a little bit too strongly. But I do think there is a case there. I mean, I've just seen, for example. A cartoon in the Economist by by Cal. I mean, who's just this awful? He he basically, in in pictorial form, exemplifies the Economist's usual smug, self satisfied, thinks it's so clever tone. It's kind of a funny cartoon. It's it's a bunch of um, white nationalists in this case. In this Sorry. case, it's just that you you were bad mouthing and you were like, but actually, I get it. So it's yeah. Anyway, but the, the, I'm drawing attention to it for a reason. So I'll just describe it. It's um. A bunch of white nationalists with blood and soil, white power, and a swastika, all giving the Hitler salute, and Trump saying, "Trust me, there are many good people here just trying to hail a taxi." Ha ha ha! Um, but I think that this is the this is the point. That doesn't right? make any fucking sense. Well, all, they've all got their hands up, so he's just going, "No, no, they're just trying to hail a taxi. They're not. They're not really fascists, you know."
2: Yeah, but if you were trying to hail a taxi, they'd all be trying to hail a taxi. So you'd yeah. be the last. There'd be so much competition for taxis.
1: Well, these motherfuckers are all upstreaming one another. You know that—that's the real evil in our world. They're all upstreaming each other. So, you know, and, can you tell listeners what upstreaming is? Well, you know, it's—it's it's when you're waiting for it's ta- someone you see someone waiting for a taxi. You know, in the way, and you move up the line of traffic um, to hail the taxi before they get one. Um, which is maybe redundant to kids. the days of Uber. Yeah, there you go. Um, anyway, but the point of this is just that, the you know, the voice of of Neoliberalism and managerialism. The Economist is able to do this sort of um, satirical anti-fascist cartoon, and it would be a shame if the left piled in with that uncritically um, and kind of tried to g- get onto this, this heroic struggle and have its own war on terror. You know, in the Phil, in the way, in the terms that Phil put it. So, I mean, guess my point to come back to what I was saying earlier is that. The response to this it remains, you know, that we have to change the conversation. That it has to be, um, that what the left has to offer is a challenge to the conditions which make nihilist terrorism appealing to to, to people. And, that, and that, which, that 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 that's a response to Islamism as well as it is to to, to fascism. That doesn't mean denou- not denouncing this. It means organizing counter protest to fascists where they where they are. Um, but it also means some strategic evaluation. So, what are the, going to be the consequences of your action, right? If it's a t- small um, fascist protest in some fucking park somewhere, let the fucking losers get on with it. Most likely, sh- would be the right response. Let them get on with it and don't draw attention to it. If they have a, if it's a defensive anti-fascist protest against or counter-protest, preventing fascists from marching down a main street and antagonizing people. That's fine as well. But I mean, I think these things need to have some tactical um, to be tactically sophisticated and and have some sort of strategic evaluation, because I think a lot of the anti-fascist protests are um, effectively a form of catharsis, a form of making yourself feel good for fighting the good fight and actually getting your hands dirty and fighting some fascists on the street, which which does feel good, but might not be necessarily the best response at all times.
0: Which ties in, actually, um, ties into one of the other news stories which has been floating around, which is um, ba- um, Steve Bannon's resignation. So um, Trump's chief political strategist, The are rumours about him being um, kicked out by Trump recently. There were kind of, apparently, discussions, you know, kind of rumours floating around in Washington that Trump was reconsidering his position. Um, and this, despite the fact that um, Steve Bannon, former Breitbart editor... Um, who also, you know, apparently was more or less the architect of Trump's victory in terms of pitching to Rust Belt white working class voters um, and also but also kind of tacking towards um, dissatisfaction, minority dissatisfaction with the Democrats. Bannon was the one apparently famously who argued that Trump needs to go and give speeches in black churches and so on during the election campaign. Anyway, he's resigned. Um, perhaps um, jumping before he was pushed, but all, he also, in the last um, forty-eight hours, I think, just had an interview published in the American Prospect magazine, where he says very clearly that the more the Democrats and the left talk about race and racism, the more the more we win. Um, and by we, he meant he didn't mean the old he didn't mean white supremacists, which from which he distanced himself in the interview. He meant what his program of what he calls economic nationalism. So being opposed to all the kind of globalizing neoliberal free trade of the last 30 years, restoring America's industrial capacity and strength, and bringing jobs back home. Um, this program, which, you know, you can see that there's clearly kind of uh, a, a program for electoral power behind it, um, as well as being a kind of more traditional kind of nationalist program. So, um does it play into bannon's political vision i guess kind of um taking extending from what you guys have been saying as to the interdependence of um anti-fascism with white supremacism um the kind of the displacement activity involved in these these antagonizing um protests and counter-protests over a cultural kind of you know this. uh masonry and cultural symbols which take away from actual kind of organization material struggles and so on um doesn't it seem that um bannon has the kind of larger political vision i
2: mean this is exactly if there's you asked you asked that that question in a a very very leading way um but i think you're you know the, the implication that you had is right is that yeah if, if if the the left in America fights fights on the terrain of of, of um, I guess of, of culture and of race, then it's it's in a really it's in a really really bad position, um, and it's and it's going to be it's going to be subject to successive defeats, and until it is able to articulate a a class based or at least an economic vision or an economic program, it's going to be in it's going to be in real trouble, isn't it?
1: I mean, if if you're main political proposition is that you should make white people think about race a lot, then it's not a surprise that you end up with Nazis, to put it quite bluntly. Um, so again, it's a question of changing the conversation. To put it a different way as well, as a basic point of strategy, you should do what your enemy least wants you to do. And I think Trump, uh, not Trump, but Bannon's statement there that uh, that he's quite happy for the left to keep banging on about race and Meanwhile, the alt right will get on with this program of of economic nationalism. Um, you know, d- don't do what Bannon wants you to do. And Bannon, I think, is is uh, in that moment being quite honest that he'd be quite happy to see the left pursue its culturalist identity politics agenda instead of actually having a politics that might appeal to people. Um, so you know, <laughs> to put it so why?
0: Okay, so but it's another it's another quite another kind of level then to the question: Why admit it? Right. I mean, this is the other thing. So he's just resigned. He must have known he was already considering his position when he gave the interview to American Prospect. And why um, open, you know, kind of why show your hand, as it were? He's in baiting. A, in a he's, he's, magazine he's baiting. of American liberalism.
2: He's baiting the Clintonite liberals who will take this as, in you know, his catnip and and say, okay, he doesn't want us to talk about this, so we need to talk about it. We need to, as I, as Alex said, we need to make sure that every white yeah. person in America is thinking about race yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. And, you know, just do the do the do the math. That that is yeah. not the calculation that will enable you to 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 to, to win power. Yeah. So I, I don't know, maybe he's maybe he's playing like a, you know have many dimensional chess. But I just think he's he's being honest and he correctly um, evaluates one of the you know the weakness or the hubris or just the stupidity of the of of the American kind of American liberals
1: yeah i think that's right, he, Mate, think that, that's my right. Interpretation. he 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 knows that the response from from the from left liberals or you know however you want to characterize them is going to be the hysterical one that ah he's trying to get us to stop talking about race we need to talk about race you know color blindness is is a is a is a proposition of of the of the right, and we need to talk about race and so on. and And he knows he's going to get that reaction. I think at the end of the day, he's probably a more sophisticated political strategist than you know the Clintonites of of this world, which I think the the the, the U.S. election proved that.
0: One thing I think that is um, that's uh, intriguing about Bannon. So I mean, there was a tendency to overinflate his political acumen um, and to kind of initially in the early days of the Trump administration before it's kind of incompetence to manage the administrative state or to drive through any kind of legislative agenda and to build the necessary kind of coalitions in the legislature, Um, you know, there was a tendency to kind of build him into this sinister power behind the throne um, who managed to kind of wangle the election with all of his um, kind of skullduggery and political dark arts and so on. And that was exaggerated. And then, you know, there was this sneering about how actually he's incompetent um, and there was then the famous Priebus quote about how he um, likes to engage in a physically implausible act of self-pleasure, as the Economist <laughs> put it. Um, you know, so I mean, there's kind of there's been uh, vacillations in terms of the response to Bannon. I think one thing though is there is you know one thing that was kind of stuck in my mind about Bannon was the interview he gave a while back where he said um, he d- took inspiration from Lenin and specifically Lenin's hostility to the state and his willingness to overturn the entire establishment. And that's something that Bannon was willing to do. He was happy to, initially, he didn't support Trump. When he saw that Trump was winning, he sided with Trump as the figurehead for the political agenda that he has of economic nationalism, but also his willingness to tear apart the Republicans establishment. You know, if there's any kind of political strategist who destroyed the Bush dynasty, something that the, at, on a level the Democrats could only have dreamed of, it was him. And there doesn't seem to me to be any figure, equivalent figure on the left who's willing to tear up the existing left, which stand in the way, actually, of what the left needs to do, um, to the same degree as Bannon was. Bannon was willing to tear apart the Republican establishment in order to um, realise what he takes to be a more... Um, politic you know, a more appealing kind of political vision for the right. And there is nobody who has the same ruthlessness and vision on the left, willingness to tear apart the Democratic Party. Because Bernie clearly showed himself unwilling and incapable of doing that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a fair point. I mean, when he described him as overinflated, I think that applied both kind of intellectually and probably physically. Um, but he's <laughs> yeah he I mean he he was he was extremely successful and that that um relationship to institutions that you that you described specifically the republican party has not been replicated and you cannot it just seems so implausible so unlikely it seems like the like the, the elite of the democratic party are so well entrenched in in those party structures and maybe there's an analogue here with the with the labour party in the uk that, that just just doesn't seem to be that, like, mm-hmm. ability to to now that politics may or may not have been re-energized or may or may not matter again. I think it does, um, but there just doesn't seem to be that possibility to to transcend the, the structures that are currently just completely constraining the left and being these millstones around around you know, people's the ability,
0: the willing the willingness to do it. I mean that's the point that Bannon had the will well, to I'm
2: willing. If you're willing, if if Alex is willing as well, we've got three people, let's go and destroy some
0: You know party. what we should do? You know what we should do? We should set up a podcast and we should talk about it and have a debate about it.
2: <laughs> yes. That will convince people, particularly if we correctly enter our, our cards into the Twitter marketing um portal and then we can be we all can right, really just right, be right. putting money behind those ads and people will be like yeah these people they flip it know what they're talking about
1: um just to make okay. a, can i just make a final point which is that to return to, to, to return yeah, can to i the make a final point, point after alex's final point to return uh, to the maybe to return to the
2: i don't actually have a final point i just God. wanted to know if i'd be able to make a final point but you can't say, can I just make a final point? Because then it's like, that's the last point.
0: Okay. Can we just, just, can we just talk about I, Islam? I'll, no one's allowed to talk about point. Islam. It... <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: fucking talk about Islam if you want to talk about Islam. If you want to be like a bigot, just go fucking talk about it. Like, no one's stopping you. Anyway, but if I want to make, I, I just want to make one final point, which is that to return to the, what I think the importance the of Charlottesville point. is. Yeah, I don't want Charlottesville to be necessarily important, but I think it is. And in reference to what Phil was saying about having the bravery to tear apart the democratic establishment, um, in the way that Bannon was willing to do, uh, on the right. It's this, the argument, I think, from the more conservative as- aspects on the left will be that we can't afford to challenge the existing structures of the left because there are actual fascists out there. Now we can't afford to do this. Of course, that argument was made even when perhaps there weren't such visible, um, fascist mobilization. So supposedly, um, I think the argument should be flipped around It's that it is precisely because there are people willing across the spectrum to break with existing institutions, which provides a, m- a moment of opening for the left um, and a moment that you can afford to be brave with these things because there's an audience there to win. I mean, the fact that ex-democrat voters even ex-obama voters were willing to vote for trump because he seemed to offer something different to the, than the the sort of clintonite establishment was should show you that there's a that there's something there to be won um, so I, I think that's just a, a, maybe it's an obvious point but one that should be that it's precisely because there might be supposedly fascists on the streets means that you should be more willing to be brave rather than less
0: and on that note um, we can all hail the arrival of General Lee next uh, for our next podcast. No, um, that's a terrible thing to say. Um,
1: <laughs> Fucking hell.
0: So next redo, week redo we, have a, we, have a, we have an interview to look forward to with uh, Lee Jones, who's going to be talking to us about um, Southeast Asia and what's happening with um, one of the kind of overlooked and forgotten episodes of um, mass violence and depression um, in Burma. So we'll be talking about that next week. So um, come in, tune in, and hear us again. I feel like that was a bit of a damp squib. Um, is there any other kind of stronger way that to comes, sell Burma? Come in is good. Tell people to come in. Dear listeners, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, but maybe by next week, the Lordy already had been another, uh, another major Trump aid uh, political advisor to have jumped the dust.
2: Hey wait 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 does it if, if I, <laughs>
0: <whoa>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what? did you just say jump the dust?
0: Yeah I know that was <laughs> like can <I> even... <laughs>
1: That's good I like jump the dust because it's like jump the shark and bite the dust.
0: Another one bites yeah. the shark
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> he bite he bit the shark? That in the <laughs> Okay, so Bannon <laughs> bit the shark and he's going to jump the <laughs> am no, just look,
1: I just wanted to know whether, whether <laughs> if Bannon's gone, do we, get, do we get to have the mooch back? Can we have the mooch back, please? Because it was Bannon who asked him, can we have him back?